This is exactly right. When I actually sat and put it down on paper, I thought, I'm doing my best and that's that's going to be enough. And my kids are okay and I'm okay and... God knows I don't make every choice the right the right way, but I was doing better than I thought at all this because it can feel like such a stressful hustle on any given day. But when you sit and actually reflect on it over the course of a year, you think, you know what? We're all doing all right. We could, we could all stand to be a little kinder to ourselves. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm your host, Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives while striving to be the best versions of ourselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, With increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show, such an exciting show. Today's show is called It Goes So Fast with Mary Louise Kelly. Mary Louise has been reporting for NPR for nearly two decades and is now co-host of All Things Considered. She has also written the suspense novels Anonymous Sources and The Bullet and is the author of articles and essays that have appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, among numerous other publications. A Georgia native, Mary Louise graduated from Harvard University with degrees in government and French language and literature and completed her master's degree in European studies at the University of Cambridge in England. In addition to her NPR work, she has served as a contributing editor at The Atlantic, moderating newsmaker interviews at forums from Aspen to Abu Dhabi. And she is the author of her new awesome book, It Goes So Fast, The Year of No Do-Overs. Mary Louise, welcome. Dan, it is so nice to be here. And thank you for the warm welcome. This is going to be fun. I have a review of your book. It's a short Uh review. And here it goes. It is so damn good. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) I'm glad it resonated. That's Uh, great. Completely resonated. And you, you know, you do a really nice job. We're going to dive in. Lots to talk about. Um, You do a really nice job of, as a mother and a professional, talking about motherhood, but also, I have to say, as a father about parenthood as well. So it really is a book for everyone. Yeah, good. I'm very glad. And I, you know, I'm super aware that all I can write is my story and that not everybody out there listening is, you know, going to be a parent at all, much less the parent of a high school senior, which is what I was trying to capture. Um, But I think, you know, just about all of us have had these moments where two things you love come into conflict you know, mm-hmm. or two places you absolutely need mm-hmm. to be happen at the exact same time. And you're facing these yes. moments where you're going to have to cut, cut some kind of deal with yourself. And we've all been there. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. this is well, my as, attempt to as, wrestle some of that to the ground. 
you start out in the book with exactly that, saying this is a book about what happens when the things we love, the things that define and sustain us, come into conflict. And that is a theme throughout, of course, the book and um, throughout your life as a parent. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in my specific case, what I was focused on was um, trying to balance a job that I love with a family that I love. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's something we all, you know, that's the story of so many of our lives. But I had felt in my work life, I'm very familiar with deadlines with a, you know, I've got not days, but like hours or maybe minutes or seconds to get this thing done because the mic light's about to go on and we're live. Mm -hmm. um, I'm very familiar with racing the clock at work. At home, you have a kid and it feels so <laughs> forever. Like you can't imagine they're going to outgrow diapers and they do. Um, you can't imagine they're going to outgrow whatever stage they're in. Um, but it hit me really hard when you know, my teenagers are coming up the oldest one to his very last year in high school and all the choices that I had made and deals I'd cut with myself, there was suddenly a very real clock and a deadline mm -hmm. that I was staring mm -hmm. down at home of, you know, I've made my choices and I'm all right with them. But if I'm going to choose a different one, like I, you know, the number of soccer games, to use an example that felt very real right. in our home and in our life, yep. you know, it's easy to make one choice or the other when there's zillions mm -hmm. to come. And, you know, you can make a different choice the next time. But then suddenly I can count on my hands the number of games I've got left. And suddenly right. those choices start to feel really fraught. <laughs> you mm -hmm. start thinking, what was I doing all this time? And it does come down to, I also think, like your essence, because what is so clear to me, um, you know, knowing knowing your work over the years as um, as a as a regular person following you in the news, and then feeling like you let us all in in your book and and seeing the the fire, I was trying to think of the words like fire and passion for journalism and for being in the field. You know, like, yeah. that's 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 different than, oh, I'm a workaholic, um, I just like to be working. Like, this, it's something different for you. Yeah. Well, I've known from a quite young age that I wanted to be a journalist and out in the world finding stories and telling them. And I've always felt so, so lucky to be able to do that. <laughs> I know how lucky I am to have a job that I love that makes it, uh, you know, uh, that provides that tension. Um, and I know how lucky I am to have any kind of choice at all over how hard I want to work um, um, and how much time I, you know, want to be in the field versus being at home, uh, showing up for the family dinners. I'm, I'm lucky in all of that. It doesn't make the choices easier and it doesn't, um, <laughs> despite my best efforts, I can't conjure up more than 24 hours in a day. And um, that feeling of there's just never going to be enough time to do all the things on this earth we came to do. And why do, mm -hmm. you know, why, why always is the really important school field trip or event or whatever it is, you know, why does that always happen exactly when the critical mm -hmm. interview that I've been chasing for two years <laughs> right. Is, right. is scheduled to take place? But it feels like that's, that's the way the chips tend to fall. Did the process of writing 
this book memoir help with any of the the feelings of sacrifice on the one hand and guilt on the other so yes i mean partly uh, again my day job is is like a freight train coming down the tracks every day one way or the other i have to get a 2 hour news program on the air every day <laughs> that's a lot it's a lot you know it's like uh, depends on the day and depends on, you know, how many different news stories are coming at us. But that's like 20 segments, interviews and pieces and features that every day, one way or the other has to get done. And some days the news gods smile and every interview you wanted comes through and they all happen to time and the people are great talkers, everything works. And other days it really doesn't. But you got to you put on air what you got and the next day you wake up and it's a clean slate. I do love that about my job, but it makes it um very ephemeral because every day you got to get mm-hmm. up and reinvent the wheel again and I'll, you know, have an interview I just loved and had worked so hard to get and thought was so powerful and 2 weeks later it's like it belongs in another lifetime. Mm-hmm. So the process of you know staring down this this year in my life that felt really pivotal, like a real inflection point of what choices am I going to make now? What are the choices I made that got me here? And what are the right ones to make in this year? And I want to just sit with that. And I don't want it to feel ephemeral. And like, I've forgotten two weeks ago, what happened? I want to just really be intentional about how I navigate this. Um, That was a really interesting process. And I think one of my takeaways from it was just thinking, you know what, like, nobody's nailed this whole work-life balance thing. Like, you know, I <laughs> no. might have spent a year trying. We've all spent many years trying. Like, you know, none of us have. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm doing okay. When I actually sat and put it down on paper, I thought, you know, like, I'm doing my best, and that's that's going to be enough. And my kids are okay, and I'm okay. And God knows I don't make every choice the right, the right way. Um, you know, my kids would be the first to tell you that, that, uh, I've managed to mess it up any which way. Um, but that, that I was doing better than I thought, I guess that's mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I was doing better than I thought at all this. Cause it can feel like such a stressful hustle on any given day. But when you sit and actually reflect on it over the course of a year, you think, you know what, we're all doing all right. We could, we could yeah. all stand to be a little kinder to ourselves. Yes, yes. And the and the notion that you write about and think about quite a bit is this what's good enough, right? Like figuring out what mm-hmm. is good enough. Um, and I, I so resonated with the stories about you traveling. And um, I used to travel more than I wanted to. Um, and the idea that it's so hard to leave, you don't want to leave. It's crushing. You're gone. And then there's these clues and comments that you realize your child doesn't even know you've been gone for a couple, a couple <laughs> days. And then, so then there's like this split um, rationalization, which is, oh my God, do I like not even matter? Or am I gone so much it doesn't even make a difference? Or on the other side, they feel so secure in who they are yeah. in their home. Like, let's, let's choose that one, right? Like, they, we want to go to that one. one. Yeah. option B. Yeah, I mean the there have been there have been more moments <laughs> that I care to recount on that front, but 
one story that that I tell in the book has to do with um, uh, I was away for uh, a weekend, a long weekend, um, going down to see the rest of my family in Georgia. And my older son called. Um, I should share it by way of backdrop. We have a driveway at our home in Washington and you can squeeze three cars onto it, but it's tandem. So like mm-hmm. if you're the first to pull in, you're never getting out again. Like say goodbye to your car for the week. Um, so there's a constant hustle on the driveway of, you know, who's who's got to leave first in the morning type thing. So my son calls me uh, and says, Mom, you know, I got SAT tutoring. I have to leave now. Can you move your car? And I'm like, James, uh, no, I can't move my car. He's like, Mom, I got it right now. Why can't you move your car? <laughs> and I said, James, I, I can't move my car because I'm not home in Washington. I, I haven't been for three days. Did you not <laughs> notice? Like, did, did you really <laughs> Not noticed, like yeah. my study that you walk past multiple times a day is dark. I haven't been there at breakfast, haven't been there at dinner. And no, he had not noticed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, I guess he figured out how to back my car out of the driveway and street park it. Um, but yeah, you think, gosh, here I am so focused on trying to get it right and be present in my children's lives that I'm actually writing a whole book about it. Right. And he didn't not only didn't notice, you know, that I wasn't home, he didn't even know I was not in the state and hadn't been right. for days. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I will well, share, I, I should quickly just yeah. say, I should, sorry to interrupt, but I, I should quickly just say, I let him read this chapter. Both my sons read all the chapters in which they feature prominently because it's, you know, it's my story, but right. obviously, right. you know, on stage with me and I didn't want to put anything out there that they hated and I gave them veto power. And that story was the one where James said, oh my God, America's going to cancel me. <laughs> like, yeah. you, I sound like <laughs> such a teenage jerk. And I said, you know what? You sound like a teenager who's independent and that was the right. goal you know? in there in his so life yeah. yeah well and i think this is what i have found to like one of the i don't know if it's a cruel irony um depending on when one has their kids it's like the grind of the career seems to coincide often with the youngness of children when they're when they're wanting you and needing you and to mm-hmm. as you point out and you really don't realize how much that is and how, fl- how how that will end. And then by the time we sort of, we get older and wiser, we have perspective, we've reached a place where we can go, hmm, I need to be more mindful. I want to be more present. I would need to, I want to have quality time with my kids. They're at a place in their normal development, which doesn't want that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly, where they really would rather go out with their teenage friends, and right, uh, yeah, right, they're just yeah, and you'll foot the bill for uh, for whatever they're up to. Yeah, no, it's totally true. I will also say, you know, I I I open the book with a quote from Toni Morrison, the great writer. Um, she has she talks about how look if there's if there's a book you really want to read, and it hasn't been written then you should write it. And that's really what brought me to this because it is true. Obviously your kids are way more demanding um, and need you just in terms of pure hours more when they're little, you know, I have two Mm -hmm. teenagers now they can bathe themselves. They can feed themselves. They can under duress back a car out of the driveway. Um, But I have found for me, the, 
the whole, you know, leaning in, leaning out, juggle, whatever you want to call it, has gotten harder as they've gotten older. And that really surprised me. And I think it does have to do with the idea that when they're little, you have so many more chances to get it right or make a different choice or off ramp or on ramp or, you know, all of that. And then suddenly, I mean, I'll always be a mom. My kids will always be at the focus of my life. Um, but in terms of just what occupies my time on any given day now, they need me a lot less. And um, mm -hmm. I thought it would all get way easier. And I <laughs> found mm -mm. the opposite. Yeah, I think it goes from physically demanding to emotionally and psychologically <laughs> demanding mm -hmm. as they get older and the complexities of life and what we know our teenagers and young adults are just experiencing in this world, which, um, yeah. as you know, better than yeah. anyone else has a lot going on. Yeah, we got a lot going on. We got a lot mm -hmm. going on. The okay. other thing, you know, to your earlier question about kind of what I may have learned from focusing on this and really wrestling with it as I wrote the book is the, oh shoot, I just totally lost my train of thought. You asked me another question, I'll come back to it. Okay, no problem. So I want to also, again, really talk about the dilemma. There's so many of our, our listeners. The, the dilemma to be our best selves is our kids seeing us being ourselves, growing, making mistakes, not being perfect, making mistakes, taking chances, taking risks, choo making tough choices. That benefits our kids. And particularly when one has this fire and passion to do more than one thing. And so with that, I want to read this quote for your comment, your quote, which is, mm -hmm. a journalist in the field is to all other journalists as the mother of a newborn is to all other mothers. Both represent the purest, most intense expression of the role. Hmm. That's powerful because they both become, to me, the singular, passionate, intense desire and role, and yet it's a constant struggle to be fully in either without letting the other go in some respect. Yeah. No, that's right. And I... One of the things I, I love about my work is I'm you know speaking to you now from NPR headquarters, and in a few hours, I will anchor all things considered from our main studio, and that's a big part of my job is doing interviews from the studio here. But I'm lucky in that uh, the editors let me carve out a fair bit of time and really want me to be out in the field, whether that's, you know, this morning I was offsite interviewing the leader of the Belarus opposition who's in Washington to lobby for more support from the U.S., um, as her country grapples with everything going on in the region. They're right next door to Ukraine, mm -hmm. of course. Um, or whether it's going to Ukraine, which I did last week, uh, last year, rather. I think it's that in our daily lives, you are doing the juggle and you're always constantly, you know, shuttling back and forth between all the different roles you play. I love being in the field and being somewhere like Ukraine, aside from the, you know, obviously the, the, importance of that story and bearing witness and 
broadcasting back to an American audience the stakes and why it matters. But I also love it from a purely personal and selfish point of view because in Ukraine, when I'm in the Donbass interviewing people, I can't move my car off the driveway. I you know, know that the dishwasher is probably still making a rattling noise, but there's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I'm really not going to be much help with consulting on what's for dinner that night. And I can focus just completely on the work. Mm-hmm. And it's only when you get out in a moment where you can do that, that you realize how much we're all trying to juggle and keep straight on any mm-hmm. given day. Mm-hmm. Um, and it did remind me of, you know, in the when I'm in the field and filing from a, a war zone or something, um, you're not getting much sleep, you're working around the clock, you're on deadline, you're so trying to make sure you've talked to every person you can talk to and how can I tell their stories in a, Mm -hmm. in a way that feels true and respectful and, you know, conveys the magnitude of what is happening, just unimaginable things happening in people's lives. Um, But it, you know, in terms of the pure singular focus as I compared it to the other major role in my life, being a mom, it, I thought, gosh, it is like being a mom of a newborn where, you know, you there's no schedule with a newborn. <laughs> there's no, nothing. Right. You're just, right. if I can just keep this fit kid fed and alive, that's a victory. And the right. next day we're going to do it again. And the day right. after that. And there's no, mm-hmm. there's, there's just no other priority going on. Everything else is going to have to wait. Um, so they are yeah. alike in that way, mm-hmm. which is a funny thing. Your description of your trip to the Ukraine um, as the war was rolling out um, and getting there early and at really a key time, that was like a spy novel. I mean, that travel, um, the redirection, the trains, the flights, the... Um, I mean, it literally was is a spy novel. And, it's, and I feel like and you're just... You're pushing. Like, it, like yeah. it, gets, it gets harder and harder to achieve your objective because of other forces that were play, whether and beyond. And it's like, <laughs> let's go. Like, let's do this. We are going into the storm, not away from it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, I've, in my career, reported from all over the world. And I always think, it, you know, it's it would be like someone from another country, a journalist from another country, flying into the U.S. for a week and only seeing New York or Washington or L.A. and thinking, okay, now I know America. Like, of course you don't. Um, and I always am aware, you know, you go to a place like Ukraine and there's more stories than I could do in a lifetime, you know, every time you walk out the door of your hotel in the capital in Kiev. However, if you can get yourself out of the capital and to another part of the country, you will hear such a different story, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that's it, it is always a priority, even you know, when I have a short amount of time. Uh, if you're in Ukraine, get somewhere outside of Kiev. I just was reporting from Iran, um, which was a fascinating trip. And uh, we only had a week on the ground. That was the maximum visa they would give us. And there's so many stories to be done in Tehran, but we pushed and pushed and um, managed to make it. Uh, they gave us permission to do a road trip down to Isfahan, which is about five hours drive south. And it feels different. And people tell you different things um, Mm -hmm. than they do in the capital. And so there's such value in that. And I love being able to capture little pieces of that and write it Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. send it back and 
figure out what's going to resonate with people here uh, mm-hmm. in America who yeah. know, may not ever, may not ever get to go to Tehran, but can I bring it to you and can I make you feel like you are invested in what's happening there because mm-hmm. it matters and here's why and here's this other person living a life that's so different from mine here in America on a certain level, but on another level, they're also like trying to get their coffee and walk their dog and, you know, make it mm-hmm. the traffic to work. And we're all just getting up and doing our best. Yeah. When you describe what you just described, you completely light up, right? Hmm. Like there's, this, you just, you just light up. And I, I imagine, and particularly as I was reading about all of these experiences in the field, the, the state of flow, Dick, do you, do you, that, that's like, it's just, do you, do you experience that state of flow when you describe that singular focus? Yeah. Yeah. I, so many times in my career have woken up, you know, in a hotel room somewhere and open the windows and I'm a coffee fiend, an absolute caffeine addict. So I'm always, you know, kicking and trying to get the (laughs) coffee machine and Mm -hmm. whatever the hotel du jour is to work. But I love waking up before dawn in a, in a new city and seeing other lights going on in the apartments around me or the buildings around me and thinking about the people in those rooms. And, um, I love, it's taken me a while because I am a total foreign policy wonk and I love, you know, doing the big UN interview or NATO interview or whatever it is. Um, I think being a mother has helped me realize it's, it's the little human moments that, that Mm -hmm. resonate and connect and make you care about um, what's happening on the big diplomatic or military front Mm -hmm. of a story. And I do, yeah, I do absolutely love that. I have at various points over my career stepped away from journalism um, to be more present as a mom. I left Mm -hmm. NPR for five or six years at one point um, and focused on writing books because I enjoyed it and it felt like meaningful work. But most importantly, I could be there when my kids came home from school. And I don't regret that for a moment and found such value in those years. Mm -hmm. And I also at a certain point was climbing the walls. I missed the newsroom, the the mm-hmm. energy of it so much. Yeah. And there would be a big breaking yeah. story on my old beat. And I'd think, Oh my God, like put me back in coach. I got to get there. I remember when I oh, came like- back to NPR in 2016 and it was a new building I'd never worked in before headquarters had moved and the elevators, I wasn't sure quite what floor I'm supposed to be getting off on it was the third floor main newsroom. Um, the elevator doors opening and stepping out and there was some story breaking. I couldn't tell you what it was. And people are running around and the studio lights are on and, you know, the, the editors are screaming and I just thought, Oh, thank God. <laughs> I'm back. I'm, I'm, I'm back. back. Yeah. <laughs> So you described leaving, leaving journalism to be um, more present, be home with your kids. And there are earthquake moments, as some call it, when we get that shock that propels us to make a very drastic decision. And you had one of those moments on assignment 
in the Middle East when you got that call. So give this, tell everyone a little teaser because to me it's like this is the epitome of what you are writing about and processing about these choices. Yeah. So that assignment was um, a trip to the Middle East when I was covering the Pentagon and part of my duties in the Pentagon press pool were traveling with the defense secretary when he traveled, um, going where he goes and reporting on what meetings he's having and what arms deals are being cut or discussed. Um, On that trip, we had done, I believe, I know we'd been in Israel. We had flown into Iraq where the U.S. was still engaged in active combat at that point. And um, when you travel with the defense secretary into a war zone, um, they don't let him just motorcade through the streets in a car. So he's traveling around in helicopters. And so the press that's traveling with him is along for the ride. Um, so for a trip like that, I, I you know, I remember that day we, we had flown up from Southern Iraq. We land in Baghdad inside the green zone, but even there they don't want his plane or him on the ground as a target for incoming fire for any period of time. So they organize this fleet of Blackhawks that kind of circles. And then one by one, they touch down, grab you and you're up. And so he obviously gets the first one, so he's safe and he's off. And then, you know, the generals traveling with him get the second one and they save the reporters for the last last, one. Yeah, yeah. Sitting next for incoming mortar fire for the longest period of time. Um, So I'm waiting on my Blackhawk and I, you know, you're in full body armor, even in the green zone, um, in the security bubble. And as I'm waiting, my cell phone rings. And I have to kind of push back my helmet to get my phone up to my ear and answer it. And it turns out it is the school nurse from my younger son's preschool back in Washington. And she's calling to tell me he's he's sick. Um, and where am I? And can I get there? And like, <laughs> lady, if you could see where I am. Uh, no, that is not happening anytime soon. And um, and she she starts speaking more loudly. She starts screaming and saying, it's, I don't mean to bring him home. I mean, he's having trouble breathing. He's really sick. We need to get him to a doctor. Where are you? And I am racing, trying to think, where's the nanny? Where's my husband? What's the time zone difference? How can I solve this? And as I'm trying to sort this through, my phone dies. I lost signal. Mm. And I have to get in this helicopter and take off. And I had, yeah, you know, an earthquake moment is the right way to put it. I just will never forget being in that helicopter up, Mm -hmm. looking down over the traffic in Baghdad and thinking, what the hell am I doing? Mm -hmm. I love my job and I worked really Mm -hmm. hard to get here, but my son needs me and I am thousands of miles away. What am I doing? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, that night, you know, I, I, I made my deadline and we were assigned to sleep in these like triple bunk beds and trailers parked that the U S army had hauled in and parked behind one of Saddam Hussein's old palaces. And there's a dust storm blowing in. And I just remember like climbing into this bunk bed and thinking, I think I need to make a different choice right now. Mm-hmm. I think I don't mm-hmm. want to get another call like that and not be able to take it. And right. on the plane back to Andrews Air Force Base, I started writing what became my first novel. Um, 
And uh, I think it was a few months later, I quit NPR. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, uh, as I say, I loved writing fiction. I loved being around for my kids. I never stopped missing the newsroom. And that, for me, has worked. You, mm-hmm. you make a decision. You choose a path. You choose what feels like it works for you and your family. And I'm all in for like two years, and then I'm gonna then I'm gonna look mm-hmm. at it again. Mm-hmm. And um, and my son was fine. His father, my husband, got there, you know, quite quickly. He was fine. He doesn't even remember that incident. Um, and right. you know, after a few right. years, they were thriving, and I thought, okay, right, put me back in, coach. Yeah, and I love the 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 modeling for all of us about choices and changes, and then more choices and changes. Like nothing's permanent, and we, you know, no. I think when people start to feel a sense of angst, depression, malaise, any of the distressing feelings we feel, it often results with that feeling of being trapped or feeling like we have no choice. And even in situations where it doesn't seem like we have a choice, I think in most cases we do. And if we can tell how our body feels when we start to think about making a different choice or making a change, right? Like it's a visceral feeling. I love that. I think that's so true. And I often, when confronted with a a difficult decision where there's just no right or easy answer, I try to listen to just which choice makes my heart leap just a tiny bit and which heart makes, which choice makes it shrink a tiny bit. And you can list all the pros and cons of one decision or the other on your notepad and run down them. But just at the end of the day, if you told me this is what's going to happen, this is where you go. Does my heart lift a little or shrink a little? Choose the one mm-hmm. where it lifts. Yeah, well said. Yeah, the and lesson. I will also yeah. say one one lesson to me that I have tried to firmly, you know, tell myself in moments where I'm wavering is, and this is true. You know, there will be opportunities that come along that may never come along again, but. To take an example from my line of work, there will always be wars, sadly. There will mm-hmm. always be you know, natural disasters to cover. There will always be another election. Those will always mm-hmm. be there. But mm-hmm. My children will not be children for forever. Yeah. And um, I haven't made the right choice every time or choices that I would you know, defend to my 80-year-old self every time. But I have tried to remember that. If I step mm-hmm. away from work... I may lose my place on the ladder. That's okay. There'll still be work. Mm-hmm. If I step away from and miss the kids stuff, you know, I'm 51. I'm not going to have more kids. It's not coming around again. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that has helped me be at peace with my decisions. And I think that's all we can ask. There's no right mm-hmm. decision or wrong decision on a lot of things. It's mm-hmm. what can you and your family live with? Yes. Uh- uh, I really appreciated your vulnerability and transparency in your stories and your experiences because it wasn't about oh look I made all the right decisions. <laughs> it was like here's one I here's one that, would that be a very short book. yeah yeah it was really like the struggle and um and it there's the decisions in the moment and then looking back on the decisions in the short run and in the long run and trying to put all of those pieces together. Um, and ultimately, as you asked your kids a few different times in a few different ways, like, how did I do anything I need to know? It's like, um, yeah, you're good, mom. Can I get some money for Chipotle? You know, like, it's like, <laughs> right? Like, 
like we yes. parents, we beat ourselves up quite. I mean, there is a, there are many of us parents that beat ourselves up way too much and it doesn't reflect the reality of the situation. Yeah. That's uh, absolutely yeah. right. Mm-hmm. As long as mm-hmm. they've got Chipotle, they're probably happy. Mm-hmm. So in terms of <laughs> lessons, lessons that I distilled that you have given your kids, don't give up. You can only control yourself and stand up to bullies. And I want to link this to someone who was, still is, very important in your life and that your dad and I, I, your mom clearly so loving, so nurturing, so supportive. Yeah. And, and your dad, that strength, that perseverance, that dedication, that like that dog headedness in calm. And I sense that (laughs) that had, has had a, there's a lot of that in you and it has, he had a lot, a huge impact on your life. Yeah. I mean, writing this book, you do reckon with what are my kids going to remember of any of this? What are the lessons that, that I, that I'm going to put in this book for them to, you know, register and internalize at some point down the road or not, but it prompts you to think of, okay, well, what did I learn? You know, what, what lessons were my parents trying to pass on? to me. And I, it was particularly on my mind because as I wrote last year in real time, my son's last year that he was guaranteed to live at home with us. Um, it was also when I lost my dad, um, after a long battle with cancer. And so that was very much on my mind of, you know, the, it became clear that my time with him was limited too. So I felt Mm -hmm. a couple of clocks ticking on the home front and, um, thinking about, yeah, what, what do we pass on? You know, everything from, from names to like, I have really big, like farm worker hands and that's totally (laughs) the Kelly side of my family. My dad's side of the family, they're all, we're all built like that with big, broad feet and hands, you know, so they're physical traits, but then the, um, the traits of character that you realize it's not like you give a speech and tell your kid to, you know, be kind and they're going to be like, got it right. Here we go. It's, it's the little things they see and hear you doing all along the way that hopefully make some kind of imprint for just the small choices day to day. And, um, my dad <laughs> was, had, had many admirable qualities, but never quitting expressed itself in many ways from mm-hmm. the fact that his preferred sport, he actually really loved was running marathons. And unlike the rest of us who are like, maybe I have a marathon in me because that feels like something it'd be nice to have bragging rights to have done once or th- once or twice. My dad actually genuinely <laughs> seemed to enjoy running marathons and did so many times. Um, mm-hmm. The the stories we tell about him and I, and I share some of them in the book. Um, but the, they were not things I thought about as big teachable moments um, in the moment, mm-hmm. but you realize mm-hmm. they stick. And, um, yeah. and I guess I was paying attention. Yes. And as you learn to translate towards the end of his life, um, you should have, you should know how to use power tools and your sons should know how to use power <laughs> tools um, <laughs> equals. I love you very much. Right. Yeah. 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 My dad, um, 
it it is not the kindest word, but it would be accurate to say he could be quite pedantic. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. that he was, you know, if you asked him the simplest question like, hey, dad, do we have a hammer? You would end up, do we have a hammer handy? I, you know, there's a, a loose floorboard or something. Um, you would end up with a four hour lecture on like, you know, the history of hammers, the proper planing of the wood, there would be power tools involved. And one day, yes, um, I'm describing the very last walk I ever went on with my dad because he was very, very sick at the end. And there were so many, you know, life lessons that I could feel him kind of wanting to impart. And um, in the end, the big question he had for me was whether my boys would like to learn more about power tools, which he felt was really important. And I got this Mm -hmm. big lecture on the importance of power tools and specific ones on which the boys might benefit from instruction and how Mm -hmm. we could do all this in the garage and his garage in Atlanta. And I sat there thinking, why the hell? Are, why are we talking about power tools on our last walk, Dad? And I realized what he's saying is, I love you. I want to take mm-hmm. care of you. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be there to hammer that floorboard. So your boys know how to do it. They need yeah. to. Can I teach yeah. them that? Yeah. yeah. Behind every great person are great people. Um, your dad, one of them. Um, your mom another one. I mean, man, just like so affirming and so supportive and um, so non-judgmental um, from what I she's read. Amazing. And um, yeah. I wanted to see if she's okay because she had a bad fall at the end of at the end of the story. Oh, thank you for asking. Um, she had a terrible fall and broke her hip in multiple places and had a, a long, long road of rehab and relearning to walk and all the rest. I am happy to report that as I speak to you today, Dan, she is just back from a week in Morocco ah, uh, with her girlfriends because she'd Wonderful. always, always wanted to go and um, said, you know what? If not now, when? Let's do it. Mm-hmm. So they booked it, and she's just back from from Marrakesh. <laughs> so she's, awesome. She's, awesome. She's doing Yeah, That's she's great. doing all right. Thanks for asking. I've worked with many people over the years who have a, um, a public life, a very visible public life, um, as you do, and then our spouses and parents and kids and siblings in the rest of their life. And there's this juxtaposition of, you know, these, these adults telling me like, you know, I I have all of this pressure and this stress and I do this and this and this, and then I come home and it's, I'm just this regular person. It's like, no one even like knows what I like, do you know who I am? Like they're saying this, not in a uh, arrogant way, but just that, that duality. Do you experience that? Um, I will say this, if you could hear any of the pings that have been coming in on my phone as I've inter- as I've been talking to you, I can see the texts coming in from both my children. Who knew? <laughs> because it's on the calendar that I have this very important book interview that I'm doing right now. And it's, you know, they want to discuss their summer plans, mm-hmm. you know, also yep. what's for dinner and can they have money for Chipotle uh, <laughs> and all the rest. So yeah, they couldn't, they, I, I, I hope I hope that I have conducted my career and lived my life in a way that they will mm-hmm. one day be proud of and that they watch me, you know, mm-hmm. trying trying my best to, you know, live the life lessons that I've laid out for them about not giving up mm-hmm. and standing mm-hmm. up to bullies and all the rest of it. But it is true that, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how, you know, 
I'll, I'll come in some days and try to tell them about an interview I've done that I think they might be interested in. Like, hey, you know, mm-hmm. I got to I got to interview Matt Damon today or I, I got to interview <laughs> the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Like, you yeah. know. Yeah. yeah. And they're like, great, great. Nice. Cool. Nice. What time's dinner? What's dinner? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it's it. It's actually so, quite brilliant because yeah, I, yeah. I don't know how anyone with kids ever gets a fat head or yes. becomes arrogant about anything because they're a daily reminder that really your most important role is always going to be getting dinner on the table. Yeah, Whatever the else you did those other eight hours of the day. Right. As you said, as you write, mom as default. Mom is just default, right? And if there's yeah. a question, just, just ask mom. It doesn't even matter where mm-hmm. she is and if dad's in the next room. Just ask mom. <laughs> okay. That is, that yes. does tend to be the way it works. Yeah. Yes. Okay. In the time we have left, you, you taught me that. I use that all the time. Yeah. I want, to, uh, I want to ask you one question before we get to the parent footprint moment question. Okay. And that is the third act. You start the book talking about the different acts of life. And as you are stepping in, are preparing for the third act, and now you're in it. We're just about in it. Um, Almost. Uh, Alexander yeah. is he, is Alexander a senior or junior now? He's a junior in high school, so I got yeah, another okay. year and change to go. Okay, you're stepping in. Yeah. The door is definitely open to the third act. What what do you vision for your third act? Oh, it's such a good question. I. And it almost depends which hour of the day you ask me, because I could answer that so many different ways. I mean, I thought about, I kind of was thinking of my life. Act one is like, you know, my youth. Act two was like, I become a mom and that wiped everything off the stage. And act three, I will still be a mom, obviously. um, But the kids aren't going to be on stage with me. They're off in their life doing their own thing, going to college and doing all the things that, that having their own adventures that they're going to be here talking to you about one day. Um, and so act three, it's like, I'm, I'm older and grayer than I was in the first two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, not as, not as agile jumping up and off the stage and you know, all the rest of it anymore. Um, but it is this blank slate again. And mm-hmm. um, an inflection point. And it makes me nervous sometimes because I think you hit your 40s or 50s. I certainly have. And wondered if maybe all the most exciting moments are, are behind me. You know, I've made mm-hmm. the big getting married, buying a house, having a kid, launching my career. Like, is what is to come? Could it possibly match that? Could it be as exciting? And I'm choosing to think, yeah, hell yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, why not? Nice. Um, why not? And I still, I, I, I kind of sort of know what I'm doing in my work now. Um, mm-hmm. I can do it faster than I used to be able to um, because experience helps. And I still have the energy to do it. Like, I still want to get on that plane and go to Ukraine or Iran or wherever the story is. And I'm staring down a moment where I... I love my work as a journalist and for the first time in 20 years, I'm about to be able to do it with very little guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, I can get on that plane and it's not really going to impact anyone, yeah. anyone's schedule. Um, or, you know, I'm not going to be lining up carpools from the Donbass or, you know, figuring out what's for what's for lunch on Thursday from Moscow. And, um, 
that I have to say feels pretty damn exciting. I don't have the answer to it yet. And I think, you know, it's going to be an adventure that unfolds one day at a time. But that feeling of as your kids are growing toward independence, which is the goal, I hadn't thought about it, but I'm coming around to that myself as well. Yeah. I'm coming around to a freedom that I haven't had in 20 years in terms of how I spend my hours. I just, mm-hmm. I can't even figure out what I'm doing, you know, on the weekends, which for the last, you know, 15 years have been consumed by travel tournaments and driving up and down the East coast, getting from mm-hmm. one muddy field to the next. Um, you know, it, Monday morning is always a, a relief when my day job anchoring a national news program rolls around because it feels so undemanding compared to being a yeah. soccer mom on the weekend. And suddenly I'm about to like have a free weekend. Like, what's that yes. going to look like? What, could, what might we do if you had all day Saturday um, to do what you like? That's kind of fun. Uh, yeah, we are recent empty nesters and mm-hmm. it is it is bizarre um it's 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 surreal and it takes a little while to get used to um but it's also really nice (laughs) once you once you step into it yeah i bet and i can't wait um you were glowing when you were talking about your third act so i want you to know like it's happening it's awesome yeah um okay the what last comment then the parent footprint moment question um for people you will read this in the book but I, i just want you to know mary louise that when I do see you on air, because you mentioned gray hair, when I do one day see you on air with gray hair, full gray hair, when your hairdresser allows you, hairstylist allows you to have it, I am going <laughs> to smile for you. Vetoing my decisions. Yes, I'm going to smile. I'm going to smile when I see it because um, I know that it seems somewhere part of the third act is stepping into that yeah. when the time comes. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'm yeah. looking forward to embracing it. It'll be okay. here. Okay, here we go. Parent footprint moment question. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, or even an awareness of your own parents, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your own life, your kids, and or those you love. I am sure other guests of yours may have had more profound answers to this, but here's mine. I... I'm terrified of spiders. I, I I can handle rats. I can handle cockroaches, snakes, you know, don't love them, but fine. Spiders, I can't, I, I just can't. It has to do with a traumatic camp experience when I was a kid myself. We won't revisit it, but um, I am petrified of the tiniest spider, you know, far on the other side of the room. And when James, my now 19-year-old, was a baby... Um, one of the first, you know, we brought him home from the hospital. We're just gearing up to, you know, venture to leave the house. And I, I was sitting on a park bench with him at the playground uh, with him, uh, you know, I think probably nursing in my lap. And out of nowhere, a spider drops down and starts crawling hmm. across his little chest. And this will not sound... <laughs> remarkable to anyone who doesn't have this phobia, but I reached down, picked up the spider, calmly picked it up, put it on the ground and it crawled away. I have never willingly touched a spider. That's and I serious exposure therapy. Wow. I didn't notice I was doing this. And my husband is looking at me and his jaw is on the ground. He's like, you just picked up and touched a spider. 
you didn't scream. You didn't call. You just picked up and touched him. I'm like, yeah, because he was on James. And he like, I didn't have time to get you to deal with it. Like, I am the mom. I need to protect James. And I thought, oh, my God, I wouldn't do that for myself. Like, if a spider was on my leg, I'd be sitting there screaming and <laughs> unable to deal with it. But on my son, you're not coming near my son, spider. Like, we're going to pick you up, remove the threat, carry on nursing. And it was the first time where I realized I am more invested in caring for this tiny human than for myself. Mm. And whatever wow. fear I may yeah. have about the world, you know, how it's going to harm me is completely trumped by some instinct I didn't know I had to protect this kid. Huh. And um, that to me, you know, more than giving birth or more than bringing him home for the hospital, all those other, you know, lovely milestones, that moment of realizing I will go up against my biggest fear and it's, mm -hmm. it's nothing compared to my desire to protect you. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's being wow. a parent. That, that is being a parent. Well, thank you. Thank you for, um, thank you for sharing your story with the world, literally putting out your memoir to the world for um, all of us to benefit and pond continue to ponder the how, how we want to live. We have several acts. We always have choices. We're often not yeah. going to get it right. <laughs> and <laughs> we also are going to do good enough. And uh, it's a journey. Yeah. yeah. Well, Dan, thank you for making this fun. You're very good at your own job, I think. And um, next time, come and let me interview you on my show. So it would be fun. I'd love I to continue love the conversation. That. I would love that, Mary Louise. Thank you. Tell everyone where they, uh, well, most people know where they can find you every day, but tell everyone where, where we should look, not only your book who, just coming out and um, all of your other work. Book is coming out and most weekdays, uh, four o'clock Eastern, you will find me on NPR. You can find that online. You can find your local member station. We got all kinds of podcasts, but that is all things considered weekday afternoons. Yes. And I host it and we do all the national and international news and um, hopefully some fun while we're at it. And thank you for continuing to do your day job um, and informing us uh, in a way that is very compassionate and transparent and seeking, always seeking truth. It has been a pleasure. Thank you, Dan. All right, everyone. Okay. Well, you know what to do. Please send this on to everyone who is going to benefit. Go get Mary Louise's book. It goes so fast. The year of no do-overs because it does. It really does. Thank you for being a part of our community. Thank you for your five-star reviews. And finally, do your best to be that person you want your child to become and ask yourself the guiding question I ask myself each day, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast 
and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.